Every week of our lives, we give ourselves to the hearing of the word. I want you to just see the three things up here that we want to remind you we need you to be doing when we do this. You can jump one more. Here they are. Understand and believe and live. Uh, Not only every sermon that we preach to you, but every time you open the Bible in a gospel community, every time you come to a leadership training, really every time you read the Bible on your own, we would love it if you gave yourselves to these three rhythms right here. Number one is understand the words. What do they say? What do they mean? What does God want me to know? But don't let it get stopped up here in your head. Let it move down into your heart. Number two, how am I doing in believing these words to be true? Are they shaping my life or not? Looking inside and saying, where am I at with these words? And then not just an exercise of self-reflection, but saying, okay, how do I then go live these words out? What changes this week if these words are true and I believe them to be true? What next? So head and heart and hands In every sermon, you should feel this happening, so hopefully today you'll feel this happening. We'll start with the words, think about them together, then I'll try and press down your conscience and your heart, and then if we have time, say, what does it look like to go be changed people in how we live because these words are true? All right, let's pray for that grace together. Father, we sit under your word. The important thing here is not the preacher. It is you you who have spoken through your word. So I pray, Jesus, that by your spirit, you would help us love our Bibles this morning and we would find words that don't sound like anything else that we have heard this week because these are divine and eternally true and profitable words. So make that true in our time up here this morning, I pray. Amen. All right, today is two different things. Super Bowl Sunday and uh, Skeptic Sunday. So the Super Bowl part needs no explanation, not for you people. I've seen the jerseys on already. This is the Patriots' sixth Super Bowl victory later on tonight. It's unbelievable. You, 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 you have no question in your head that today's a Super Bowl Sunday. Good. But it's also a skeptic Sunday. Let's talk about that before we hit, hit the Bible together. Uh, so here's how we say this here, that Jesus has placed us in Uh, and sent us to, placed us in and sent us to a post-Christian context. Let's make sure we know what that means together. Uh, We live in a city, Boston, and the the cities around it like Melrose, that used to be super Christian. For example, there's 17 church buildings just in the zip code 02176. Does that that surprise you? 17 church buildings in Melrose. Uh, They used to all be full, and now most of them are totally empty and just running on endowment funds if they're not actually being flipped into housing. We have, as a a context, as a city, for the most part, abandoned God and his gospel. The most common response that I get when I talk to somebody about Seven Mile Road is a nice, pleasant smile, and then, oh yeah, we don't do church. That's we don't do church. There's two big implications to this. One is that people have heard the name Jesus. They've heard that name here. This is not like the mountains of Tibet or somewhere. They've heard the name Jesus. But the Jesus that they have heard about 
is a caricature or a straw man or a joke, really, just like this highly edited, emasculated, postmodernized Jesus. That's all that, that your neighbors and our context knows. And so we say that one of our hopes is this, that we would help Bostonians see Jesus again for the very first time. Now that sentence like makes no sense in a logic class, but it's true for us. We're, we're trying to help you see Jesus again, in a sense, but for the very first time in another sense. The second thing this means is this. Having been raised in a secular culture like Boston, where we live, uh, our friends, our neighbors, all of us, all we've heard is the dogma of a secular worldview, which means we know all the objections to the silly Jesus people and their silly churches. We've heard them all. And so another one of our, object, uh, our hopes here is to quietly, kindly, purposefully, graciously raise those objections out loud and say, yeah, we, we have them too. We know there are some places that we get tripped up in thinking about the Christian faith. A skeptic Sunday is about addressing those questions on a monthly basis in the life of our church. The average Bostonian, you and me included, is skeptical. And so we just want to say, okay, let's talk about it. So that's the feel that you should get on these first Sundays of the month as we do this together. All right, so here's what we're dealing with today. I'm sure that you have heard this objection before. Here's how I like to say it. Christians are the no-fun police. Has anybody heard this spirit of this before? Christianity is a no-joy religion. Christians are grumpy and brooding and uptight about the rules. They like sitting in hard pews and listening to long, boring sermons. And half their churches don't even have air conditioning. To hang around with Christians, you got to tuck in your shirt, and you've got to comb your hair to the side, and you've got to hide that tattoo and get the pink color out of your fancy new hairdo because Christians aren't going to go for that. If I wanted all the fun sucked out of my life like with a Kirby vacuum, then I would go to church. But until then, I'm all set with the Jesus thing. Have you thought that objection? Have you heard that objection? Let me drop some illustrations so you feel this really clearly. So uh, two of our kids are on basketball teams at their school, and their school took them to the Celtics-Knicks game on Wednesday night. They were going to the game. Providentially, uh, coincidentally, buddy of mine, Jason, texts me and says, hey, I got tickets to the Celtics-Knicks game. You want to go? I was like, wow, this is perfect timing because I got to take my kids anyway. So I go with my buddy. We're sitting in, you know, that last row where your head is literally bumped up against the, the, the bricks behind you. And you feel like if I lean forward, like to pick up, I might tumble all the way down onto the court. So we're there. The kids are directly opposite us in the other grandstand uh, balcony seats. So I didn't bring binoculars. I'm like looking to find them. So the whole game, I am watching the, the big screen in the middle when they do the fan cam at the timeouts and people are supposed to be having a good time and dancing. So 
Julia and her crew got on there twice, and she was just having a ball with her Celtics jersey on it. But then there was this one guy, and the camera went on him, and he went just like this. And then, you know, the, the, uh, the sarcastic guy on the camera kept him on him for like 10 seconds, and he just folded his arms, and he squinted his eyes, and he was like, not me. Is that what it means to be a Christian? When we first planted our church, we went to a big city parade, and we brought uh, our band with us. And it was noon, the middle of a beautiful June afternoon. And so our band was just rocking out some, some, some music, having a good time, doing some covers and some Christian music. And the grumpiest old curmudgeon guy I have ever met in my life comes down and accosts me. And he starts berating me for not respecting, what do you call it, the peace, the, uh, for disturbing the peace. He was in his apartment like a block away trying to sleep. And how dare we have music in the middle of the street on a sunny June day. That's how he looked at me. So I was gracious and I was explaining to him what was going on. Uh, Was he a Christian? Is that how Christians roll? Just grumpy and cranky like that? So Grace and I went to college together. We were in love big time. Uh, It was a Christian school. We loved being there, but it was very strict and rightfully so about No boys in the girls' dorm and no girls in the boys' dorm. There was like one night a year where you were allowed to go see each other's room. In the middle of of all of this was this shared space where the boys and girls would hang out. It's called the fishbowl because they, they did glass, you know, around it to make sure nothing was, you know, happening inside the fishbowl. So one night, we were hanging out with friends, and Grace used to like really like me, for real, I'm telling you. And uh, she sat on my lap in the fishbowl, and, and like across, across my lap, you know, so I'm sitting there, and she's on my lap sideways, but her feet are not on the floor. Well, this RA folds her arms and makes a beeline for us from across the fishbowl. And you know the music when Darth Vader's coming into the, uh, da, 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 that starts playing over the thing. And she comes over to us and she says, you two, no PDAs, and I want to see four feet on the floor. Is that what a Christian is? Living life like this, arms folded, eyes squinted. My job is to make sure nobody's having any fun. No. And we know where this tendency comes from. So feel this with me. Uh, To be a Christian is to have come to see the depth of your sin and, and the doom of your sin and the steep price that was paid to to forgive you of your sin. And so we should be a people who are marked by a moral seriousness Absolutely. We should have no patience for shallow, trite, you know, pop music joy. That's, that's not what I'm talking about. But morally serious and grumpy or brooding or uptight, those are not the same thing. It is possible to be morally serious and also bottom of the ninth, grand slam, joyful. 
But that combination is not very easy to get to. Do you know the story of Mary and Martha in your Bible? If you've never heard it, here it is. Uh, Jesus, Jesus is over their house for a meal. Jesus. And Mary isn't doing a thing but sitting there and smiling at Jesus and listening to Jesus and chopping it up with Jesus. Martha, her sister, is running around distracted, making sure everything's how it needs to be. She sees Mary not helping, and she goes all R.A., and she crosses her arms, and she makes a beeline for Jesus and Mary. And when she gets over there, she squints her eye, and she scolds her sister in front of Jesus. Who does Jesus correct in the story? He corrects Martha. Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, and it's causing you to miss the best part of the night. Do you feel this? Martha, you're you're doing something good and important, yes, but grumpy, anxious, troubled, brooding, come sit with us. Come enjoy our time together. Don't miss out on what God has put in front of you tonight. Now, it's no surprise that Jesus would respond that way to Martha, right? His life and ministry, was it attended by arms crossed and squinting eye or arms lifted and an enjoyment of the simple pleasures of life and the people that that surrounded him? Which was it for Christ? Joy. What was Jesus' first miracle? Anyone know? He turned water into wine to keep a party going. His friends were getting married. He was all about the feast. He was there with his crew, with his posse. And they came to Jesus and they said, hey, we're uh, out, of, out of wine. And what was his response? Uh, drinking so much wine so fast. <laughs> what was his response? He turned seven jars, like six feet tall jars of water into alcohol, not so anyone would sin and get blasted or wasted, but because in a feast, there should be the merriment of wine. That was Jesus' first miracle, like this. What was the big criticism that came against Jesus and his disciples? Anybody remember? They came up to Jesus with arms folded and a squinted eye, and they said, Jesus, John's disciples fast. And, and the super-religious Pharisees, they fast too. But your disciples, they're always feasting. Every night, you guys are at a different party. It was the barbecue joint last night, Mexico Lindo tonight, Cheesecake Factory tomorrow, then you're stopping at Richardson's. What is going on with all this feasting and laughter and joy and partying? And what did Jesus say? Of course they're feasting. They've got me right now. When the boys are with the bridegroom, the boys have fun. The boys enjoy. Their spirits are supposed to be high. When Jesus came into Jerusalem for the last time, how did those who loved him, adored him, welcome him into the city? Remember what they did? They got a DJ out. He was scratching and they had this incredible festival, fiesta, 
They were singing. They were dancing. They were celebrating. They were shouting. They were tearing their outer garments off and throwing them on the road and smiling as Jesus walked by. It was the first flash mob ever in Jerusalem, outside of the city. Did Jesus go, keep it down, people. Shh, enough of this. Don't make too much noise. No, who did that in that story? It was his critics. They folded their arms and they said, why are you allowing them to honor you in this way? Why aren't you telling them to be quiet? And do you remember what Jesus said? He didn't go, you're right, you're right, I'm sorry. We've got to keep it down around here. What did Jesus say to his critics in that scene? He says, I'm not telling them to stop. This is right. If they stop partying, the rocks are going to cry out. The rocks are going to start doing the Macarena. Rock arena. This is right for them to celebrate and have joy. In other words, I am here to throw open the doors of heaven to these people. How can they not celebrate and sing? Why was Jesus this way? Why was his life attended with a fever pitch of feasting and joy and gladness? It's because this is the tenor of the kingdom of heaven. Jesus had come from heaven, and he brought with him all of that joy. Uncle Ray Ortland says it like this, heaven is nuclear-powered happiness. Nuclear-powered happiness. No one is happier than the Trinity. No one. And so the Trinity's joint, the Trinity's place, is a place of joy. Here's how Jesus said it one time. He said to his disciples, in trying to give them a picture of the mirth of the heaven that you are headed for, he said, I tell you, I'm telling you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. There is joy in heaven over just one sinner repenting. And that does not mean that the angels get super hyped with joy and start like flapping their crazy wings. God is not on his throne in the background going, all right, all right, you guys, that's enough. Let's get back to the serious business of running the universe. It's just the opposite. Heaven hinges on who? Heaven responds to who? To the Trinity. It's their place. Whatever happens in heaven is immediately in accord with the will of God. What does that mean for that verse of Scripture? God is the one who is driving that joy. And it doesn't take much to set him off. You ever meet anybody like that, like the littlest thing? Like, hey, I didn't burn the toast. Woo, let's party. (laughs) This is the heart of God. Just one sinner repents, and he says, time out. I want all of heaven rejoicing. Feel that? Some of you might not even crack a smile if you won the lottery. I've talked to you about it. You're like, ah, but the taxes, they kill you with the taxes. You win $700 million, all you get is 350 of it. I know you people, this is what you are like. That is not Christian faith. 
Christian faith is not a kill switch to everyone's happiness. It is a 10,000-volt juice to happiness now and forever. Following Jesus does not look like this. It looks like this. Where am I getting this from? We're going to chop up just a verse and a half. That's all I've got left to do from you from the book of Ecclesiastes. The book of Ecclesiastes is wisdom and how to navigate your life in a brief and broken world. How do I actually do that? It was written by Solomon as he was coming to repentance for a big sin in his life. There's two main refrains in the book. Here's the first one. Life under the sun is vanity. If you go read Ecclesiastes, you'll see that phrase over and over again. Here's the big idea. Life is a hot mess, and then you die, and nobody remembers anything about you. That's basically one of the big notes of Ecclesiastes. Sun comes up, sun goes down a couple thousand times, and then we bury you. Grass grows, you go mow it, you come back in three days, grass is back. You mow it again, come back in three days, grass is back. You think you're having fun snowboarding, and you realize the meaningless of it all. Because I go up the hill, then I go down the hill, then I go up the hill, then I go down the hill. Congratulations, this is your life. Empires grow, empires crumble. You're born, you just begin to live, and then you start dying. You start this company, and it's gone immediately. You have to pay Ancestry.com $500 just to find out what your great-grandfather's name is because nobody remembers or knows. It's all vanity. Our culture lives in denial of this, right? There's posters and slogans everywhere about, oh, go for your dreams and all this crap. And Solomon says... It's nonsense. It's vanity. Nobody cares about your dreams. Nobody's going to remember you in a year or two, a century. Forget about 500 years. Who won the 2003 Super Bowl? Nobody knows. You'd have to go Google that and try and find it. Tell me something Grover Cleveland ever said. Go. Possibly. He was on top of the world, president of the United States. Did you even know that name, that he was a president? What did I preach on two weeks ago? It's helpful in the moment, like right now, but you don't remember. I don't take offense. You know why? Because life under the sun is all vanity. Okay, now if this is true, you might think that the big idea of the book Ecclesiastes is what? So get a big glass of water and a bottle of pills and just put yourself under because it's depressing, meaningless. Why don't you just put yourself out of your misery now before going through with all the nonsense that's going to happen. The great surprise is the book is that God says exactly the opposite is true. Here's the other big idea of the book. By grace, we can actually enjoy this brief but broken life rightly. By grace, or the book says the gift of God, the gift of God, the gift of God to you is that you know this life is vain and fast You know that it's broken and brief, but because you have God, you are able to enjoy all the days of your life. Yeah, life's a parade that's like three hours long and it's done. But don't kill yourself. Pull up a seat and enjoy the show. Get some cotton candy, check out the balloons, listen to the song that they do when the parade stops, pick out your favorite float, enjoy the parade, God is with you. 
God is for you. You don't have to brood. You can party. Here's how Solomon says it, just two verses. Let's look at them together. He says, go, eat your bread and drink your wine with a merry, eat your bread with joy and drink your, go and eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart for God has already approved what you do. Ecclesiastes 9, 7. Let's feel the words. Let's understand them together. What's the verb? Go. What does a curmudgeon do? What does a grumpy, cranky critic do? Do they go? No, they stay. They hunker in. They fold their arms. They complain. They don't take any risks. Would a curmudgeon ever go to a parade? If you offered a curmudgeon tickets to the game, what would they say? Ah. Jesus, through Solomon, says to you, life is right there. Go. Go get it. Go enjoy it. Why are you hesitating? Are you like shackled to your past? Are you afraid of the future? Come on. God is with you. God is for you. There's a life to be lived. Drink some Red Bull, wash it down with some Monster, and get out there and go. My girls love to go to the mall, right? They're 13 and 10. Me, on the other hand, ah, if you had surveillance footage of the three of us walking into the mall together, this would you see. First, there's me. As soon as I get to like, the doors that open and I go, oh, God, help me, I'm about to walk into the mall, all the energy from my body gets like completely sucked out. You know the giant darts that they tranquilize elephants with in uh, the Sahara? I always feel like I just got nailed with one of those in the thigh just when I'm about to walk in. I'm like, oh. There's no going in my heart walking into the mall. How about the girls? You ever seen a 13-year-old and 10-year-old sisters walking into any mall anywhere on this planet? Those doors open and what happens? Boom. Justice. What's that other store with all the earrings? Claire's. <laughs> Tellos, Orange Julius, Foot Locker. It's like, man, the mall. Woo! You feel that go spirit? That's the Holy Spirit's word to you about your life. Go. Go. Go do what? Go eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart. Joy here is the Hebrew word, samach. It's like the highest possible energy, joy, glee, pleasure, mirth. Uh, you know how happy Grace would be if I got us tickets to go see Bruno Mars? Yeah, see, someone almost fainted over here. Do we have paddles because we might need it? Did you hear that little gasp? <gasps> That's the joy of this Hebrew word right here. Like, whatever that is, you would be like, Oh, shoot, seriously? Woo! That's this word for joy, connected to a merry heart. Not sinful joy, not lustful joy, not indulgent joy, not joy for you at the expense of someone else, not law-breaking joy, not that stupid false joy at a casino or in an affair, not that joy. This is a raucous joy in the simple pleasures of life. Everybody see it? It's not you have joy because you're going on a cruise. You have joy because you hit the lottery. You have joy because everything's right. 
You have joy because you're doing TB12 and you drop 15 pounds and you look good. It's just joy in the simple pleasures of being alive. Eat your bread with joy. Drink your wine with joy. This is a massive rebuke to me because I'm not a foodie at all, but I'm always with foodies and I don't know what's going on with them. One of my friends, we had dinner and he was like, how was it? And I was like, "Uh, it was food, it was fine. And he looked at me dead serious and he said, how did he say it? He said, you need to close the enjoyment loop by sharing with someone else the joy that you found in eating the food. He got all philosophical with me. I'm serious. He was like, you need to tell someone how great that food was because that completes the cycle of enjoyment. That's what he said, the cycle of enjoyment. I was like, what in the world? He's coming from a gospel-centered place there. He's a little nuts, but he is coming from a gospel-centered place too, right? You're supposed to eat, eat your meals with some joy. It's okay to like your coffee. I don't do coffee, but you guys do, and I make fun of you, but I shouldn't because you're more holy than I am. You're going, kid, Ecclesiastes 9-7, let me enjoy my latte, please. I am drinking this with joy, with a merry heart. That's Bible. God wants you to enjoy the simple pleasures of your life. And why? For he has already approved what you did. So here's the gospel centrality in your Bible in this verse. This is the anchor of our hope and joy. It's the grace of God to you in the gospel. We don't have to be good enough to earn our happiness. That's how I'm right, right? Was I really good six days in a row? Okay, now I can smile. That's not the gospel. God has already approved of you in Christ. (sighs) Breathe that in. Let it break your grumpy arms open. Let it lift your frown into a smile. Yes, you are imperfect. Yes, this is a broken world, and there's a lot that should grieve us living in a city like ours. But Christ has overcome the world, and his gift to you is that you can enjoy your time in it. Isn't that awesome? This theme threads throughout your Bible. I'm listening to Romans at night. It's supposed to be to help me fall asleep, but then the Spirit through Paul keeps dropping all these gospel bombs on me, and my mind is racing at midnight about the grace of God in the gospel. And I listened to this last night. He says, let not the one who abstains from eating barbecue, eating pork, enjoying certain foods. It doesn't say eating barbecue in the Bible. I put that in parentheses. That's my Bostonian thing in there. Let the one who abstains from eating barbecue says, you know what? I'm going TB12. I'm not going to enjoy that right now. It's okay. But if that is you, don't judge the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Oh, you feel the same thought? Ecclesiastes is looking forward to the gospel. Romans is looking back at the gospel, and it is saying, you have no more guilt, no more shame lifted, no more fear of the future. It's lifted You are secure. You are loved. The smile of God is on you. Enjoy some barbecue. Open your arms. Breathe in the grace of God. And he finishes with this thought, or we'll finish here. Let your garments always be white. 
The word always there should be capitalized and bolded for emphasis. That means this should be the default tone of your life. You, you know how this works in English, right? If we say somebody is always doing something, we don't mean in every circumstances at all times. We mean general posture. So if you came to my house and spent a week, you would go, that little girl Callie is always singing. You feel that? Is she singing every minute of every day? No, but we use that to show the default tone of, of this girl's spirit. That's this right here. There are times when you will weep and you will grieve and you are right to do so. But, but hear me, that is not the baseline, the soundtrack of the gospel life. The soundtrack of the gospel life is not grief. It's joy. We could say it like this. Tears in your life are inevitable. They're going to come. You can't avoid them. They will be there. But God is looking at you and he's saying to you, but what about the laughter? See, you could miss that. If you just take life as it is, you'll just go, ah, oh, this is the worst thing ever. Everything's a downer. And God says, yeah, there's tears. I got verses for that in the Bible. But the default posture of the gospel changed heart is joy. It's upbeat. It's my gift to you. White clothing represented what you would imagine. Cheerfulness, comfort, brightness, gladness. That's the spirit that should be the norm for us. We have Christ. What do you wear to a funeral? Black. Everybody got something in their closet that's appropriate for a funeral, right? Black suit, if you're a woman, a black dress and not an awesome black party dress that you wear to hang out with your husband like a, a black grief dress. We should have that clothes. It should be in our closets. We should wear it at the right time. But if you live like life every day like somebody passed away, something's wrong. In fact, usually you should be going for the joyful clothes. What is your like comfort outfit? What do you wear if you're just like, everything's right with the world, my conscience is clean before God. I'm going to go do my thing today with joy. What do you wear? In these days, it would have been white for you. I don't know what it is, but your clothing should reflect your heart and the grace that you have received in the gospel. God doesn't want you constantly wearing that black suit. He wants your spirits lifted. You have his gospel. You can be bright. You can be bright. pair of jeans that fit just right, and the radio up. That's the spirit of the gospel-centered life. Dress bright like Jesus is Lord, and then let not oil be lacking on your head. That's our last thing. Oil here is pleasant lotions, um, soft on your skin. In our day, we would say, hey, put on some makeup. Get, get out like your party clothes. For me, it used to be, put some gel in your hair. It's like when I was ready to go, it was like, boom. For a while, the straight back, then they were doing this thing, you know, the faux hawk where you can lift it in the middle. Put some gel in your hair, a couple of dabs of your car right over here, and you hit the town and you're ready to, ready to go, ready to enjoy whatever is coming your way. What's the big idea? Here it is. As Christians, we are finally free to enjoy the life that God 
has he given us? The objection that you have been told about Christianity is a falsehood. The opposite is true. Without Christ, there is no true joy. There is no way to enjoy God's world without God at the center. But with Christ, finally free to let our hair down, to turn the radio up, and to enjoy the life that God has given us. Okay, now let's move to believe. If you are not a Christian, I just want to make sure you know today that this is the life that we are inviting you into. It is not check all your fun at the door and come to Jesus. It is come to Jesus and there is joy before you that you have never even knew existed. If you are a Christian in here, how are you doing with this? Come on, think about it. I know this is hard for some of us. We just don't have it in us to let our hair down and to enjoy ourselves and to enjoy God and his good gifts. I was cracking up because in my prep to preach to you, I was reading some uh, old dead commentary writers. I love to do that because they take me out of my Bostonian pretense. But one of these dudes was struggling to believe this to be true. Listen to this with me. He said, Not that we must place our happiness in any of the delights of the senses or set our hearts upon them, but what God has given us we can make as comfortable a use of as we can afford under the limitations of sobriety and wisdom and not forgetting the poor. So I want to go back in time and just give that guy a hug and be like, dude, you're coming to my house tonight because the Pats are winning their sixth Super Bowl and you're eating wings and nachos and whatever drink you want. You see how even he was struggling to believe these words to be true? He was like, yeah, we should be happy, but, 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 but. If that is you, can you just get rid of the buts? I mean, just for one day, just try today to walk in the joy of Jesus. Eat a taco, drink some Mountain Dew. I don't know. Enjoy God's gifts. Now, the reason I'm preaching with such energy is because I get this. I would be the guy who could write that paragraph in the commentary. It's on my mind like to say, I'm not watching the Super Bowl. I'm reading John Owen, the death of death and the death of Christ. Life is short. Brandon will tell you we were in Costco, BJ's the other day buying something and he was reading a magazine. You know what I actually said to him? Just such a terrible father, but I'm trying. I went, Brandon, those are the gods of our day, athletes, chefs, and celebrities. And he's like, I'm just trying to enjoy the Food Network magazine while we stand in this line. (laughs) I need help. I need the Spirit's help to honor God by enjoying the life that he has given me. If any of you know me, you know that. Even Martin just said to me like, oh, wow, you're not wearing a black shirt. We saw each other yesterday. So part of the black shirt is about the rosacea gets toned down if I wear a darker color. But part of it is that is my tendency toward the black shirt. And like I need somebody in this room to buy me a white shirt (laughs) so that I might believe the gospel to be true. What about you? Which is it? Is it this or is it this? Here's my go live it. I'll give you an example and we'll close. For example, would you please enjoy the Patriots' sixth Super Bowl win tonight? whether they win or not, that's a word from the Lord, that tonight you might go and just enjoy the game. It's okay. You're free to do that. If you have nowhere to go, 
and you were just going to turn the lights down and fold your arms and watch it with no sound on. Come to my house, please. We got a new TV, a couch, there'll be good food, and you can help me and I can help you enjoy the simple pleasures of life. When you get up tomorrow, have that same kind of joy. What would it look like for you to live this out? Think about it, write it down, and do it. Here's what I'm committing to you if this was a gospel community to go do. So this lady, Ellie, that I work with at my day job, every day she says to me, oh, hi, Matt, how are you? Usually I go, fine, Ellie, how are you? Here's what I'm saying the next time I see her, Monday morning. Ellie, I am unbelievable. I'm not going to hell anymore. The gospel is true, Ellie. The smile of God is on me today. He has already accepted my work. You wouldn't believe how good I am. That's how I'm going to ask, answer Ellie on Monday morning. You can ask me how that goes and if she just doesn't ask anymore. <laughs> That's over the top, but I'm such a curmudgeon that I need it. Would you go live that way? That people who intersect with you would know there's a moral seriousness. When it's time to weep, they weep with me. But man, generally, their hair is down, their jeans are on, their radio's up. And you know why? It's because the smile of God is on them. They are walking in the grace of Jesus, and there's a joy there that's electric. All right, let's pray together. Father, thanks for this simple verse and a half or two of Scripture. Would you forgive us for missing out on the spirit of joy that we're supposed to have as Christians? Would you let Seven Mile be a place that's morally serious, but super bright and happy and glad and joyful? Would you teach us to do that? Would you help us watch a Super Bowl today in a gospel-centered way and show off this truth? The smile of God is on us. Help us to believe it, I pray. Amen. All right, we're coming down to the table of Jesus, juxtaposition. We're remembering a murder, a brutal, brutal, bloody death necessary to forgive sins, but we're also celebrating an